0: Contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and today on the Afternoon Light podcast, we are talking to Dr. Thomas Wilkins, who's a senior lecturer in international security at the University of Sydney, and he's also a senior fellow with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Lovely to have you on Afternoon Light podcast, Tom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thanks Georgina. It's uh, wonderful to join you at the Menzies Institute and uh, have this opportunity to reflect back on uh, how Australia-Japan relations have prospered since the, the Menzies era right to the present day. Just a quick disclaimer that the uh, the views that I express here uh, are my personal views and uh, don't necessarily reflect the views of the organisations which I'm affiliated with.
0: Tom, I wanted to start our discussion going back to, to World War Two and where Australia's relationship with Japan was at in the, in the sort of ashes of, of the Pacific War. And, and can you paint a picture for our listeners about what was going on at that time?
1: So you asked about the fallout of uh, the Pacific War in terms of uh, Australia-Japan relations uh, in, the, in the post-war period. Well, you know, the first thing to remember is that Australia was um, a key member of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force in Japan stationed in the, the western part of the main island of uh, Honshu and uh, um, headquartered in uh, Kure, And uh, naturally, I think the, um, the feelings amongst Australian troops were, were still raw as uh, revelations of uh, Japanese treatment of prisoners of war in Southeast Asia began to emerge. But I think maybe the exposure that the Australian troops had to Japanese domestic society created a little bit of cultural understanding and some of the um, troops that were stationed in Japan, um, they actually brought uh, Japanese women back as brides with them to, to Australia. In terms of Australia um, itself domestically, um, I think public perceptions in, uh, in Australia were, were very negative And they were very much fueled by um, uh, sort of uh, publications that appeared in the uh, or accounts that appeared in stories from returning Australian soldiers about things like the uh, the Thailand-Burma Railway of Death and the Sandakan Death March. Uh, Death March. I think diplomatic relations were, were fairly cordial but frosty, and that sort of really went on until the end of the Cold War. I think the um, the, the the main avenue for rapprochement between the, the two countries um, in the post-war and uh, Cold War periods was the deepening economic ties um, that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more later. And historical reconciliation was really sort of left for a future date. Nevertheless, it's um, important to remember that uh, around the the 1950s, uh, Robert Menzies himself did make a very strong statement saying that, uh, you know, hostility to Japan must go. It's uh, better to hope than always remember. And uh, I'm happy to talk more on the the reconciliation issue um, going forward.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to uh, to reflect on what enormous change has occurred when it comes to Australian attitudes to Japan. My grandfather Alec Downer was a POW from forty two to forty five in Changi, in Singapore, mm. obviously held captive by the Japanese, um, along with many thousands of Australian soldiers there, and experienced pretty awful conditions by all accounts, and, and many of his, his contemporaries um, died during that time from malnutrition, starvation and, and maltreatment as well. So I, I know that for that generation, there are many, many people who never, never, ever reconciled Japan as a friend of Australia. They might have been accepting of Japan as an economic partner, but this sort of deep friendship it's taken generations to change minds and um, it's you know and as you say, even even in the sort of fifties, sixties, seventies when the economic relationship was, was doing incredibly well, there wasn't necessarily that feeling of affection that we have that we have today. Um, in nineteen fifty seven uh, the Menzies government signed a commerce agreement, basically a trade agreement with Japan and it was preceded by a visit by Robert Menzies to to Japan and actually in the Menzies collection here at the University of Melbourne... There are some lovely photographs of that trip. There's a couple of official photograph albums that were produced by the Japanese government and presented to Menzies. And they actually have a wind up musical box inside them. So when you open them, they, they sing to you, which is very beautiful. But, you know, a trip that, that clearly showed Menzies was given um, a great reception and had an audience with the emperor and, of course, the, the prime minister at the time. Kishi, uh, who is mm. the grandfather of the more modern day Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who'd be familiar to, to many of our listeners, I'm sure. And uh, and then and then after that, the the Commerce Agreement is signed, and that really, uh, while it was unpopular, the portion of of the Parliament and a, I understand a portion of the party room, the Liberal Party room, it was passed and ratified and and opened up. An extraordinary economic relationship which today Japan is Australia's third largest trading partner it's the second largest export destination for Australian goods and Japan is the second um, largest source of foreign direct investment in Australia I mean amazing economic relationship can you talk me through how that economic relationship developed from that 57 commerce agreement Tom?
1: Hmm yeah, um, by all means. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I think the you know, there's uh, I think there's there's several stories or several phases to how we have got to where we are today. And uh, the first one of those is obviously the um, the economic foundation of the relationship, which was, you know, as you said, a little bit controversial with the um, with the Australian public uh, given their historical memories. But of course, not as sensitive as uh, say you know secure the security cooperation that we have today. So. I mean, what really what really catalyzed the relationship was the demand for Australian raw materials um, in the rebuilding of Japan in the post-war period. And the Japanese themselves have acknowledged, you know, just how crucial it was to um, receive the raw materials um, from Australia in order to, um, you know, to go through their first their process of reconstruction. And then, of course, later on in the 50s and 60s, they returned to, um, to an economic boom, a sort of second industrial revolution. So, I mean, iron ore and coal and so forth uh, were really sort of used to, to, to feed and fuel this nascent um, economic boom. And uh, that's what the, um, the uh, 1957 um, Agreement on Commerce really sort of codified and facilitated. And so the, um, the, the trading pa- uh, partnership really developed to the mutual benefit of, of both parties. Um, by the mid 1960s, um, Japan had overtaken Britain as um, Australia's number one trading partner, and uh, you know the economic connection with the uh, the, the motherland was some um, further impacted uh, going forward by the, the European Union joining the, um, the Euro- uh, sorry the um, uh, the United Kingdom joining the uh, the European Economic Community. In 1973, so by 1974, I think 70% of Japan's iron ore was coming from from Australia, and uh, you know this was further codified beyond the Menzies era with a second agreement that you know that built upon this path-breaking 1957 Commerce Agreement by, by the Menzies government, which was the um, the, the so-called um, Nara Treaty or the Basic Treaty on Friendship and Cooperation between Australia and uh, and Japan. And so I think this this second iteration, which of course is beyond the Menzies era, but that, that Menzies had laid the groundwork for um, earlier, was really took the the relationship to to another stage in terms of you know the the ties that have been built up economically. Um, it um, it sort of normalised the, the relations between the two, but um, you know. Going forward, of course, uh, you know, um, up until uh, the sort of the 1990s, where um, where um, Japan's economic bubble burst and its economy began to stagnate, uh, Australia's um, primary trading partner shifted from Japan to, uh, to to China. But that's not the end of the story in terms of the economic relationship, because in 2014, um, Japan and Australia um, signed the. Um, Japan-Australia uh, economic partnership by uh, Prime Minister um, Abe and, uh, and Prime Minister Abbott. And so the economic opportunities have continued to unfold, but just sort of in diff- different ways. As you pointed out, very, very very well um, briefed um, in terms of... Uh, uh, Japan being such a large investor in, in Australia. And I think, you know, it's important to emphasise that because that points to the sort of the long-term durable relationship and the level of trust that one has between investment partners rather than trade, which can be here today and gone tomorrow as we've, um, <laughs> we've yeah. learned to our, our peril, yes.
0: yes. Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, speaking of being victim of trade embargoes, Japan has also been the victim of trade embargoes Argos from from our northern neighbours, uh, and mm. I was there during the time when China stopped the export of rare earths to Japan, and rare earths are really important in the production of high-tech goods like mobile phones and electric cars, batteries, and over a, a territorial dispute, a spat in the, in the Japan Sea, where the... Um, Japanese Coast Guard and a Chinese fishing trawler or potentially not just a Chinese fishing trawler um, had a clash. you then had a, you know, this enormous backlash in China against Japan and I think that's worth reflecting on you know, 12 years later that Australia is not alone in, in, in having to deal with this this sort of backlash when it comes to bilateral, disagreements over, over various issues and, you know, it's how you deal with it. And people often say, oh, we should look at Japan. They can handle the relationship with China really well. But Japan has had its significant challenges over many decades, um, probably many many millennia really, and it's had its highs and lows. And, um,
1: yeah,
0: Australia is certainly not not alone in, in struggling with that.
1: It's probably um, worth just mentioning, uh, you know, um, in relation to the uh, – the suspension of uh, rare earth exports to Japan um, during that Senkakus crisis. But um, um, now that, Aust- that uh, Japan has started to di- diversify its supply chains to get more secure supply chains, um, it's um, encouraging Australia to, to fill some gaps in those critical minerals, including um, developing our capacity to develop um, rare earth metals for export. So um, I think that's a, a really key point
0: Yes, I think that that period uh, really exposed how few options countries had when it came to sourcing their rare earths and, um, you know, the that the development within australia and other countries united states had been wound back and china had had kept up with it and of course it was in almost in a, it was in a monopolistic position and and that's 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 definitely changing but it was you know these supply chain issues have come back to haunt us again with the COVID 19 pandemic where we we realize we're overly reliant on on one market to export us certain items it, again just recently with the ukraine crisis europe's realized whoops you know a bit a bit reliant on russian energy maybe we should have some diversification but look um, this does bring me tom to the security relationship with japan which has become an absolute focus over the last two decades um, of the australia japan relationship can you paint a picture how that has has developed because that that was very much a really significant step up from just an economic relationship. And Australia has a lot of really good economic relationships, but having a strategic defence security relationship with the country shows the relationship is moved to a much deeper level, a much more reliant and trusting level
1: you're absolutely right Georgina and um, so one way to look at um, the, uh, the development of our very strong bilateral relationship that we have now as I, as I sort of alluded to earlier was these kind of phases first sort of uh, an economic phase um, then towards the end of the cold war um, our political and diplomatic cooperation including uh, sort of cooperation on peacekeeping uh, operations in um, Cambodia and so forth and then I think that built up the necessary level of trust to embark upon what we is now a very, very close um, security partnership, officially known as the Special Strategic Partnership. And you, know, you can only do these things with countries where you have built up that trust over time because security and defence issues and intelligence and so forth are so sensitive. What really catalyzed the relationship between Australia and Japan was the way that um, in the uh, the post Cold War period, and as it started to face challenges from a rising China and North Korea and, and various other ones, that it was looking around for new partners, and you know it knew outside of its central US alliance, and it knew that you know some countries it wasn't going to get very far with. There's still hostility with uh, some of its um, uh, Northeast Asian neighbours. It looked out to Australia, and it said oh, we can really do business with these guys. Um, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, a like-minded regional partner. Um, we have the same sort of values and interests in, in common, liberal democracy and a fellow US ally. Um, and we can really together profitably um, collaborate across a whole number of areas, especially, and, and, and this is really the, the most recent development in this, is um, our joint adhesion to this new Indo-Pacific construct, And this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific, where Japan and Australia, both together but alongside the United States as well, can um, um, can sort of push back against some of the challenges that we see to the the rules-based order there. And so, um, you know, they've they've built up. uh, 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 Japan and Australia have built up um, a layered um, and uh, complex institutional relationship under this strategic partnership mechanism now.
0: Yeah, and of course, um, a precursor to to the strategic partnership and and of course the the Quad more recently has been um, the trilateral strategic dialogue that took place with um, or takes place with the United States, and that I think that's really key to to the development of the Australia Japan security relationship is that we're both allies of the United States, Australia through the the ANZUS alliance, um, and Japan through its own own arrangements. Um, I mean, there are US bases in Japan on Japanese territory. Um, there are US installations on Australian territory. So we had so many shared ties in that respect. So under the auspices of this trilateral strategic dialogue, we were able to form a, a regular series of exchanges on security issues, but but sort of under the cover of this is a US alliance partner, Talk and then to expand that to a bilateral level, and that and that was a big jump for Japan, um, which has. Obviously, given its its history and and the way in post World War II it was remade, um, really you know by the the U- United States, their new constitution drafted, de- sort of demilitarisation of of Japanese society and governance structures. Um, you know Japan's outlook on on security issues is quite different from Australia. They even have constitutional limitations as well that we we don't have. So this was an enormous change in the way japan interacted with partners aside from the united states wasn't it tom
1: yeah uh, absolutely i mean i think uh, for both australia and japan um the united states um alliances and the united states presence in the indo-pacific is absolutely crucial for their security but i think especially sort of um During the the Trump era, um, but perhaps a little bit before as well, both countries were starting to get a little bit worried that they had to do more themselves to buttress that American system. And so they wanted to do more alongside the United States, like the trilateral strategic dialogue that you mentioned, absolutely. But also to build a bit of sort of, you know, not entirely independent, but sort of slightly um, separate capacity by building up um, their own, you know, bilateral strategic partnership. And they, they did this. I mean, this, you know, this happened before um, the, uh, the, the Trump administration, but where they, um, they you know, the, the really sort of foundational document, the real watershed for the, um, the bilateral um, security partnership between Australia and Japan was the 2007 Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation, And, um, you know, where basically the country said, you know, we see the region, you know, through the same kind of geopolitical lens, we're determined to uphold the rules based order, ideally with the United States, but we're going to have to shoulder some of the burden ourselves and see what we can do ourselves. And so, you know, now you have things like uh, annual leaders summit meetings, um, annual um, foreign defence ministers meetings. Um, which result, all result in joint statements, so you can you know see exactly what the the bilateral Australia Japan um, position is on a whole range of, uh, of different challenges, but really just to um, you know to to use this as a as a platform um, to engage the region through this sort of joint. Sometimes we say middle power cooperation, although Japan is more than a middle power, um, and you know, and show that these these middle powers or secondary powers are making their contribution um, alongside the United States, but with other like-minded countries that want to participate as well.
0: I think um, it would be worth Tom talking about Japan's own security situation because it shares um, a common outlook with Australia on how the Indo-Pacific should operate, that it should be free and open. um, There's a rules-based order. But Japan has several territorial disputes with its its neighbours and I think gives Japan a particularly, you know, it is in a particularly tricky strategic position. I mean, Australia doesn't have the Territorial disputes like Japan does with, with, with um, China, with Korea, um, with Russia and Taiwan, of course. Can you talk through those, the impact of those territorial disputes on Japan's strategic outlook and what sort of strategic posture that gives Japan? That is, that is quite different from Australia in terms of its direct threats.
1: Yeah, that's um, a very important issue, I think, for Australians to understand within the context of how close we've we've moved um, towards um, Tokyo um, in recent years. So, I mean, to sum it up, Tokyo repeatedly states uh, uses the phrase uh, that they inhabit a increasingly severe security environment, and that they're on the the front line of Northeast Asian security challenges. So they've got. Um, You know they've got um, friction with China, which um, you know comes from the the shifting balance of power and China's um, uh, China's massive um, economic and uh, military gains over the last couple of decades, and the way that it's actually uh, expanded its influence. Um, and pressure upon its neighbours. If you look at uh, you know, the, um, the creation and militarization of um, of, of uh, artificial islands in the South China Sea, this is replicated. I mean, Japan is worried about that, but it's even more worried about the East China Sea, where they have dispute uh, disputed um, territory. I mean, on the Japanese side, there's no dispute, but China disputes it, and so China has repeatedly um, sent uh, both naval and and um, uh, the naval forces and uh, and uh, um, uh, fishing fleets and so forth, uh, and also and, uh, and air sorties. Are um, uh, uh, into the that, um, territorial zone of, of Japan, and Japan is, is constantly forced to respond to this this pressure. At the same time, um, Japan has gone on record about um, the uh, its concern over any conflict in the Taiwan Strait, with of course Taiwan being a close but unofficial partner of um, of Tokyo, and its territory being only separated by about uh, 100 kilometers of, of sea. Um, North Korea, of course, is always rattling its, um, uh, its uh, uh, missiles and, uh, and nuclear capabilities. Um, and, you know, Japan is, is often subjected to uh, sort of a, a threatening invective from, from Pyongyang. And then, you know, Russia still plays its part in, in putting pressure upon Japan, uh, again, on the basis of those um, um, territories, um, which the, the two countries dispute, the northern territories, but this has really galvanized Japan in terms of its um, security and defense reform. So, especially under Prime Minister Abe, Japan has been determined to play a greater security role in the region, um, alongside allies and partners like Australia. And so it's, You know, it's changed a lot of its domestic legislation. In 2015, we had the new peace and security legislation that loosened some of these um, self-imposed historical ties upon what Japan can actually do in conflict or crisis situations. And it's also reformed its uh, so-called defense architecture, how it organizes its forces and, and below that, how it's modernizing its forces to meet challenges not only in the land, air and sea domains, but also in new domains such as cyber security, the electromagnetic spectrum and so forth. So um, you know, Japan is being very, very proactive. It calls its you know, contribution to international security a proactive contribution to international peace. And behind this, the, the pace of reform and the, and the changes as Japan sort of becomes more of a, a normal security actor uh, been quite prolific and actually strongly supported by um, the uh, the Australian um, political and and defence establishment.
0: Tom, how important was uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to all those those changes? Because this has happened, um, obviously not not in a vacuum. And and I, people unfamiliar with how Japanese bureaucracy works, it's 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 fairly slow. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, but but you know. Uh, There was a change of government in 2009 in Japan... from the long-standing Liberal Democratic Party to the Democratic Party of Japan, a sort of a centre-left party. Uh, but then it, they had a really an unsuccessful uh, term in office, three prime ministers, that sort of revolving door prime ministership that um, mm. we've unfortunately become a bit familiar with in Australia. <laughs> um, but uh, but they had um, Hatoyama and then they had Khan and then Prime Minister Noda. And, of course, in that, in that period of time, they had the earthquake tsunami crisis, which you know rocks the country and the stability of the country um, you know particularly its sort of economic progress and and of course the sort of general psyche of the country was very much shocked by that period but but there was there was even back then discussion about you know changing Japan's strategic posture but the the Democratic Party of Japan leaders were not quite of the sort of ilk of, of prime minister Abe he came in in um, the end of 2012, um, with a real mandate to make Japan a, have, have a more normal strategic posture and normal set of, uh, I guess, strategic settings, legally speaking, was it was it all about Shinzo Abe, or can we can we see this of a in a kind of trajectory of Japan's posture, strategic posture, responding to? the changing dynamics in Northeast Asia and, and the Pacific more broadly?
1: Yeah, so I think it is part of a, a long-term um, sort of uh, strategic trajectory, And uh, but I think it's sort of ebbed and flowed in terms of activity. So there's been non-stop incremental gains probably, you know, since the, the end of the Cold War. Um, but um, it was um, firstly Prime Minister Uizumi that I think sort of really made major contributions on these fronts. On this front, then we had this um, sort of uh, well, Abe came in briefly um, and then had to step down 2006, 2007, I think, and um, uh, and then we had this interregnum that you pointed out where you know there's a huge shock that the LDP were uh, replaced by what was then the Democratic Party of Japan, which has since disbanded, yes. <laughs> um, possibly <laughs> due to their um, <laughs> their. Uh, um, Unwindly, um edifying uh, role in, uh, in in government. I mean, I remember at this time that the DPJ government was really, you know, came under a lot of criticism. For being um, inept and lacking the experience, I mean, understandably, since there's only really been one political party in government since the, the end of World War II, But you know, they were they were just rocked by, um, by by a whole range of things. I mean, the the I mean, obviously quite understandable, but the, I mean, uh, for any government to deal with the, the 311 crisis, the, the triple disaster, but also uh, one of the things that really sort of flared up was this attempt to tilt more towards China and away from the United States. Um, and um, you know, got into this huge quagmire of uh, of wanting to um, renegotiate um, U.S. military bases in in Okinawa, and then the um, the the, uh, the um, Chinese uh, fishing trawler ramming the the Japanese coast guard, the Senkaku shock. Um, that really just turned their their the whole administration upside down. So when Abe came in, you know, he really had a, a strong mandate based upon what he originally wanted to do in his, his very first short term to, um, you know, to revitalize Japan as a security actor. He used the, um, the, the phrase, you know, Japan is back, and so am I, <laughs> um, to sort of to kick off his, um, his second and, and very long du- uh, um, duration as, a, as Prime Minister. And so, you know, he had a, a lot of things happen under his administration that were absolutely groundbreaking. I mean, just to think of a few off the top of my head, the formation of a National Security Council Um, like the United States and many other countries to have this kind of control tower, as they call it, over crisis response and security policy to lend it more direction, to centralize it within the prime minister's office. They published their first national security strategy document as well, which laid out that these are the challenges we face. This is how we're going to respond to it. Just get a lot more direction to... Um, you know, to what in the past, you know, commentators have pointed out as a sort of a, a little bit sort of low profile or sort of reactive policy, much, much more proactive. And then I think, you know, his big achievement He has been criticized as a historical revisionist and, and nationalist. Um, and, you know, that's a complex picture. But under under his second term in office, um, this idea of a, an Abe doctrine where Japan would reshape its, um, its security identity, to become more proactive, to become more normal, to contribute more, to build new relationships and to consolidate both uh, and, and revise both its sort of um, security apparatus, its defence apparatus and its uh, military posture as incredibly important. And just one, one last thing to, to, to highlight, Um, that I mentioned earlier, was this 2015 peace and security legislation, which really changed some of the sort of embedded limitations and constraints upon Japan as a security actor, in particular allowed it to take a more proactive role in its own defence against, say, missile threats, Um, but also allowed it to engage, um, very importantly, in collective self-defence, meaning that um, it could defend um, uh, uh, against security um, um, threats or attacks um, against Japan alongside the United States or other strategic partners like Australia, and so, you know, the number of his achievements is is quite uh, an impressive portfolio. Um, those are just some of them. But I think also a strong leadership as well is something that, you know, he really left his his imprint on there, like Koizumi, that, you know, this is what can be achieved with a strong Japanese leader, unlike this sort of fairly revolving door of a fairly sort of lacklustre or at least sort of slightly faceless leaders that we've, we've seen in the past.
0: Yes, I uh, I was struck by Abe 2.0, the sort of second time round. How he, like leaders, you know, Menzies came back a second time after resigning in forty one. In forty nine, he came back and had a, a long, very successful leadership, mm, charting mm. Australia through, you know, the Cold War and some significant challenges, uh, both domestically and externally. Abe the same, you know, Howard Howard the same had come come back again as leader of his party. But um, I, I back to your um, comment before about you know this historical revisionism i've i found it interesting uh, back when Abe was first elected in 2012 and into 13 and 14 when he was trying to get this revised interpretation of the Japanese con- constitution through um, which which was you know, absolutely part of his mandate and um, he was deeply committed to that it was reporting in the western press that that he was you know ultra nationalist and mili- you know wanting to return to Japan to a sort of militaristic posture without realizing the constitutional interpretation prior to the change R brought through, and and the and the you know changes our had driven. That, that really constrained Japan to, to do things that Australia as a country would take for granted, the United States would take for granted. In every other country in the world had a, had a degree of um, independence of deciding You know what was its self-defence or collective self-defence or when it could defend its interests, not necessarily on its defined territory, but there are moments when you would like to defend your interests, say, in the broader Pacific. Japan couldn't do any of that before... Abe brought through these mm. changes. Really understanding not just sort of the rhetoric or of his opponents, or you know, of course his his um, state opponents like you know China and North Korea and even South South Korea. Um, Actually, understanding the substance of, of what he was trying to achieve, uh, yes, he's a, he's a Japanese patriot. That's that's for sure. And he has some, uh, from an Australian perspective, there are some difficulties with his his views on um, Japanese war history, um, particularly the the. Um commemoration of people who we would consider war criminals um, at the mm. Yasukuni Shrine and, and the impact mm. that has on its particularly its near neighbours, um, Korea and the like. But you want your leaders to be patriotic, surely? <laughs> That's they're leading your country. You'd want them to love your mm. country and defend its interests. Uh, mm. So I was I was sorry he announced his um, retirement, and uh, I had reasonable hopes for his successor, Prime Minister Suga. But I knew um, now Prime Minister Kishida as Foreign Minister. Um so it's um it's good to see him in that position. I know he's a strong friend of Australia which is which is a good thing from our perspective. I wanted to finish our discussion, Tom, with um, uh, your thoughts on on the quad and um, the quad the quad I mean it seems new, but it's actually not very new. It was a Japanese idea back in the um the time of the Howard government, and um it had its issues with was India really that keen on it the United States as keen and then it was Australia that keen and then Australia started winding back its interest um, when there was a change of government and and it was really put on ice and, of course, Abe, Abe um, out of power and the DPJ being elected in 2009, it, it lost all momentum, but it, it was revived and it's been an, a really interesting development in Australia's network of, of security relationships and I think the bringing in of India really does open up um, a whole uh, range of opportunities, but of course, with the Ukraine crisis and India's relationship with Russia, it does have its um, difficulties. There are there aren't always a confluence of interests between the Quad partners, and that's where this is a new arrangement, and it still has a fair way to go to being something that, that is um, as powerful as its potential.
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, well, I think those are all very, um, very important insights that you've just mentioned, um, you know, just to, to, to add my um, uh, perspective on it. Um, I think we've got to be a little bit careful when we approach the, the quad. I mean, um, you're, you're right; it sort of uh, it had sort of two evolutions. I mean, the first one, Japan and Arbe took a, a key, or, or you know, those close to Abe took a you know a key part in in sort of um, spruiking this. So, I mean, we had the talk of the confluence of two oceans in India in 2007. Um, you know, the whole idea of the Indo-Pacific, and let's bring India in, and then sort of uh, um, the uh, the. I think it was Foreign Minister at the time that said, uh, "You know, the arc of freedom and prosperity." And then there was another one that was um, Abe's uh, "Democratic Security Diamond." And so, you know, this really showed that how Japan, you know, really catalysed and, and was really motivated to, to develop the Quad. Um, then, of course, um, it was um, well, arguably torpedoed by uh, by Prime Minister the Prime Minister in 2007. Um, and then the second iteration uh, came back in, in 2017, of course, again, under and Aave's uh, um, uh, uh, period in office. And, um, you know, I, I think in some ways that the Quad, you know, is is basically like the, the trilateral strategic dialogue partners, Australia, Japan, and the United States as a core, and then sort of trying to bring India in. But But India is not as close to the other three as those three are to each other. And so, you know, there's always – it attracts um, attention that, you know, India, you know, doesn't necessarily share these interests or anything. So, you know, the um – often you'll find that the Quad really sort of needs to come down to the lowest common denominator. I mean, there's definitely, you know, shared concerns about the, the rise of China, you know, um, challenges to the rules-based order from a number of um, different directions. But I think you see a l- lot more cohesion between those, those three parties, US, Japan, Australia. And, you know, and then India has quite different concerns. I mean, it's very worried about Pakistan, for example, um, whereas that is not a huge priority um, in terms of what, you know, say Japan is or, or Australia are worried about. And, you know, I think we've just got to be realistic about what the quad can actually achieve. So if we look at a sort of the big picture, then it's, it's really good to have these, you know, these four like minded democracies with a certain degree of coincidence in their, their, you know, their strategic interests, working together, talking. That's absolutely a good thing. Um, sort of brings a bit of, you know, with India coming in, also sort of feeds to, you know, the opportunities that countries like Japan and uh, and Australia see for economic cooperation and, and closer ties with India, sort of brings that into a, you know, a, a common kind of um, a democratic front. But in terms of what it can actually do on the practical level so far, um, it's got a bit of a mixed record. I mean. Mm. Ideally, it can focus on on maritime security issues, um, sort of uh, what we call maritime domain awareness, and sort of you know not literally freedom of navigation, but you know sort of you know free transit and this this, this sort of thing, um, and sort of surveillance and uh, and all these kind of things in this you know this maritime environment at the Indo-Pacific, and they've done a lot of good work on things like um, pandemic response and, and and you know plans for technology sharing and everything, but. We've got to be a little bit cautious about, you know, certain people have started saying, well, this is a this is going to be an alliance or a, you know, oh, you know, either it's an alliance now, which is completely wrong, or that it'll develop into an alliance in the future. Um, I think, you know, that, that really remains to be seen. I think it's better to sort of see it as, you know, intersecting bilateral relationships brought into a quadrilateral sort of dialogue format, but not just limited to dialogue, a certain degree of Practical cooperation does come out of that, in contrast to some other regional organisations which have been sort of um, derided as, as talk shops for not actually producing uh, practical results.
0: Yeah, and I, I do think the um, Ru- India's stance on on Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine does give us pause for thought when it comes mm. to what the Quad can achieve. If the Quad's shared ambition is that, you know, they're, they're, they're liberal democracies, the four, the four partners, and they um, believe in a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, rules-based order, but then one of the partners fails to condemn the invasion of, <laughs> of another country, <laughs> you, know, it, yeah. you know, and 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 by the way, that the country that's invaded that other country is also a Pacific country too. So you mm. know, if you mm. you you've got to question where you know where it is at in terms of its um, development, but also the potential, and and I think um, you know the, the pressure that can be exerted on on India by Quad partners. Um, will, of course, be balanced from India's perspective by the importance of the supply of arms to India by Russia and, and, you know, uh, the other aspects of that relationship. So um, countries, you know... You you would know better than me, Tom. You know we live. um, I I believe in a in a world of realpolitik and um, countries act on their own interests and uh, and obviously look at the power dynamics operating in the world and and make their strategic decisions based on those and that that these. India's um, particular strategic concerns of, of Pakistan of China uh, of course in the Indian Ocean um, but it but it you know ultimately needs to defend its its own territory and and it has made its decisions about what statements it makes in the international stage based on those not on but not based necessarily on the sort of ideological outlook it might have or a or a sort of a philosophical approach to international relations. So uh, a, f- a fair bit of work to, to go there, I think, for the QUAB. But, um, Tom, it's been wonderful, wonderful to have this uh, chat with you today. I love talking about Japan, loved hearing all your views. So thank you very much for coming on the Afternoon Light podcast.
1: Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Georgina.
0: The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.